Welcome to Fick Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodity strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence Fick Research Team. Welcome to the Fick Focus Podcast, Macro Matters Edition. My name is Ira Jersey. I'm the Chief U.S. Interest Rate Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence, the research arm of Bloomberg LP. We're staying in-house today, going to Mike McKee, who is the Bloomberg International Economics and Policy Correspondent. Uh, you'll see him on the TV, radio, as well as uh, um, as well as at the press conferences for uh, after the Federal Reserve meetings. Mike, thanks very much for coming on Fick Focus. Happy to be here. So let's first talk about your career. You know, how did you wind up getting to where you are at Bloomberg? Um, you know, you're the go-to source on uh, after data releases, after Fed meetings, after Fed minutes, um, and, and the like. You know, talk a little bit about your yourself and and how you got into the seat you're in today. Well, I started covering politics uh, many many years ago and uh, worked my way up to. Uh, the White House and covered the White House under Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush and the first part of Bill Clinton and then uh, said, I've done enough of this. And Bloomberg said, "Okay, you can cover the economy. I had um, Eco 101, like most people in college, but hadn't done uh, much more than that. Went back to school uh, to uh, Johns Hopkins to learn more about uh, economics and started covering the, the whole economy. Uh, Bloomberg added the Treasury Department to my beat. And then um, the funny story about the Fed is that uh, I had no thought of covering the Fed. And one day there was a Humphrey Hawkins testimony up on Capitol Hill. And our reporter who was supposed to cover it called in sick that day. And they said, you're going to do it. And I was terrified because, of course, nobody understood what Alan Greenspan was saying. And so how was I supposed to know? And I went up there and he made perfect sense. And they said, well, <laughs> now you're the Fed reporter. So I've been doing it uh, since 19, uh, about 97 and uh, basically uh, have um, added the whole world to my economic portfolio, but focused on the United States and the Federal Reserve. Taking advantage of opportunities. And I'm, I'm sure that Mr. Greenspan uh, has said to you that if he made sense to you, he probably wasn't saying it correctly. Um, <laughs> exactly. He's, he's certainly certainly said that to members of Congress in, in the past as well. Um, so so over the years, you know, in, in your, your career covering the Fed over the last uh, 25 years or so, um, you know, you know, communication policy has changed meaningfully. And we went from um, Alan Greenspan without too many uh, Fed speakers or governors talking about monetary policy. Like, you know, they might have talked about bank regulations or something else in public forums, but not not usually heavy in in, uh, in terms of monetary policy. Yeah, you know, that's shifted, over, particularly over the last 15 years or so. Can you talk about that, how, how it's been covering the, the Fed and, and kind of the the content that's come out of it and some of the challenges that you've had in parsing the signal versus the noise with all of these members of the Federal Reserve that you speak with, whether it's out in Jackson Hole or, or at, uh, at different forums in, in New York or Washington? It's changed a lot. Um, the old uh, feeling was encapsulated in Bill Greider's book titled The Secrets of the Temple, 
Uh, <laughs> it was close hold on everything. And of course, uh, fixed income desks around uh, Wall Street employed people who would watch the money supply figures to try to figure out what the Fed had done at their meetings. And now, uh, starting in 1994, Alan Greenspan put out the very first statement after a Fed meeting. The Fed was trying to be preemptive because inflation was rising and they raised rates, but Wall Street wasn't expecting it. So Greenspan thought if they told them kind of what they did and what they were going to do, it would limit any damage. Um, Veterans of 1994 would argue that it did not limit the damage, but it did start a precedent. And over the years, the Fed has increased its uh, openness and explanations of what it's doing. Uh, when we got into especially the uh, great financial crisis and the Fed started throwing anything against the wall that would stick every kind of lending program they could think of, every kind of bailout program they could think of. They needed to make sure that people understood it. So we got an awful lot of clarity uh, from them at the time. And that was the time that they started doing the news conferences by the uh, Federal Reserve, uh, who was Ben Bernanke at the time, as part of an effort to explain what was going on to people. Bernanke was also the first to really use Jackson Hole as an opportunity to explain or to lay out what the Fed was going to do. That's where he announced quantitative easing was coming. So all of a sudden, the market went from not knowing what was going on and trying to figure it out by uh, stirring the entrails of the money supplies to almost too much information. The statement grew to two or three pages long. Uh, then at the same time, uh, members of the Fed, particularly the regional bank presidents, started speaking more. Uh, it's a defensible thing in the sense that they're trying to explain the Fed to their constituents in their districts and they go to the Rotary Club or the university and they talk and many times they say exactly the same thing, but it just kind of adds to the cacophony of all this uh, Fed talk coming out. The problem I think Wall Street has, Ira, is that uh, traders tend to focus on the headlines rather than the speeches, and they don't seem to connect dots all the time between uh, various speakers and their likely vote. Uh, and, and that's a, a problem that creates uh, volatility. Uh, the Fed is openness really gives you a, a, a opportunity to go into any meeting kind of knowing what they're going to do. Uh, they've dropped the idea of surprising the markets. And so uh, if you follow that on a daily basis and read the speeches and, and consider the nuances within them, uh, you, you're you not really as lost as sometimes uh, traders seem to be about where the Fed is. One other thing I would mention, uh, along with the increased transparency on in the statement and uh, and more people talking they started putting out the dot plot in their summary of economic projections and, and that's really caused problems in the sense that it's 19 different members of the open market committee the 12 fed bank presidents and seven members of the fed board and they all offer their own forecast for the next uh, two three years and they look at that forecast and back out what they think the Fed funds rate should be under the conditions that they uh, they foresee. 
we look at the number in the middle, call that the median and say, this is what the Fed is forecasting. And that's not true. <laughs> it's not a forecast. It's a, an estimate of where the economy is going to be. And if the economy is there, that's what the uh, Fed funds rate could be. And so the Fed uh, puts those out quarterly. Once every three months, they change them. And uh, if you're an investor, you're changing your mind about what the economy is going to do and what the markets are going to do every day and minute by minute, uh, depending on what new information comes in. So it leads to some confusion in the in the markets about what the Fed's going to do because uh, they people look back at what the Fed's uh, dot plot was and say, well, this is what the Fed said they were going to do. And it wasn't what they said they were going to do, and it's also three months old. <laughs> so, yeah, well, they, they said it's what they said they were going to do, conditional on their forecast being realized, right? Oh, that, yeah, everybody that, drops that conditional on the forecast part. Yeah, that's always the issue, and we know that that they're just as good as forecasting as as most other uh, professional forecasters out there too, um, including our our own in-house folks as well. Um, talk a little bit about some of the other things that that have occurred over the last uh, 20 years or so, right? Going to um, you know whether it's Davos or Jackson Hole and and speaking with people yeah you know are there, are there do you find some of the the people who you wind up interviewing at the fed have they gotten more comfortable in front of the camera compared to say you know 10 12 years ago when they first started coming out regularly or um and are there people who you you know you think are a little bit more open than uh that surprise you how open they are perhaps compared to uh, some others well openness is is in the eye of the beholder we would all like members of the Fed to say, well, this is what we're going to do, and, and this is how I'm going to vote. And that's not what you get. Uh, you get sort of a list of things that they're thinking about, and you try to parse out what that tells you about what's going to happen because the economy is doing this or, th or that. Um, but when you talk to them now, they are much more uh, comfortable talking to the press and they know they need to do it. Uh, they've set these precedents. Uh, we talk to them much more uh, than we used to. Uh, we now see members of the Fed on a regular basis and talk to them on a regular basis. And uh, some of it's off the record and some of it's on background. And then we do our regular interviews. And uh, the trick is trying to get them to tell you enough that you can make some inferences from that. There are some Fed Bank presidents who are much better at that. And what you find is that over time, when you get to know them, you can understand their thinking. And so when they're telling you what they see in the economy, you know they're seeing it through their personal lens and their lens is uh, discernible to you so you can kind of figure out what they're trying to tell you in terms of of what's likely to happen but you have to speak with all of them because uh they only speak for themselves <laughs> and so uh you're, you're juggling 19 people's views but it has gotten easier so when, when you speak with these folks on background or behind, there's always this idea that, you know, that the market's forcing the Fed into doing something because the market's priced for what the Fed's going to do, right? So it's a bit of a chicken and egg story and, and a circular argument, right? Because the market's trying to anticipate what the Fed's going to do. So the market moves and uh, prices for hikes or prices for cuts that the, the Fed Reserve then maybe, you know, does perform or doesn't perform. Um, and part of that is by, by design more recently, I would think, you know, 
know, given what you just talked about with the communications policy and all the people speaking and the dots and everything else. Do, do you think that there's sometimes some confusion in, among that? And do you think that members of the Fed who you've spoken to, you know, how closely do they take the market into account in adjusting policy one way or the other? Well, look at it a couple of different ways. One is that uh, stocks go up and down and bonds go up and down and they trade on a regular basis based on all kinds of information. So it's not just the Fed that moves the markets, but the markets are important because that's how monetary policy is transmitted into the economy. So they take the market seriously and they in a way, try to prepare the markets for what's going to happen. They really don't want a lot of volatility or to take the markets by surprise. They feel that monetary policy is best transmitted into the economy by uh, the markets understanding what the Fed is going to do, and in many cases, pricing it in ahead of time. Sometimes you get uh, a real dichotomy between the markets and the Fed, which is kind of where we are right now. The the dot plot median number was three rate cuts this year uh, and the market priced six. But what you'll see happen is they tend to converge as they get very close to a Fed meeting about what's going to happen at that meeting. And once you get within a week or two, the Fed, especially when they go into their blackout period, they've told the markets basically what's going to happen without telling them, but they figure you're smart enough to know uh, what they're going to do. And so the markets can price things in and be pretty accurate with what's happening, which is what the Fed wants to do. Now, as far as overall market reactions, uh, they will say, basically, uh, we don't care if stocks go up or uh, bonds go up or down what we care about is that you can still trade them. And if you can still trade, then the markets are working and it's up to investors to figure out what the, the bid and ask is and not up to the Fed to try to drive that in any particular direction. So they look at the system and make sure the system is functioning. And beyond that, the, they just sort of give you a, a rough idea of what they're going to do and hope you figure it out correctly, which in general, by the time we get to the meetings, the markets have. So two, two things I'd love to unpack there. N number one is you mentioned about going into the blackout period, which is the, the week and a half or so before um, the Fed meeting starts. So it's actually a week before the Fed meeting starts. Uh, but in, in June of 2022, we had a bit of a surprise, right, where there was, um, you know, talk in, in some of our competitor competing media outlets that, that had suggested that the Fed was going to hike 75 basis points when the consensus in the market pricing was for 50 basis points, maybe, you know, some chance of a 75, but it was, mo you know, primarily 50. And then that shifted uh, basically on, on, a, on a Friday. Um, you know, talk about, what, do you think that that was a, either a failure in communication or if there was a, um, you know, th that that was one of those few times when you wound up having, uh, in recent memory anyway, when having the Federal Reserve not do a great job communicating? Well, uh, what they did was basically, in case of emergency, break glass. The economic situation had changed during the uh, blackout period. We'd gotten some uh, different numbers in that made them feel like they needed to move more quickly and raise rates faster, but they couldn't come out and say that in speeches or hint at it because they're in the blackout period. So they went back to a very old playbook, which was used under uh, 
Volker and Greenspan of uh, speaking anonymously through the Wall Street Journal. Uh, the journal is, is has been around for a long time, and it's kind of their uh, go-to leak place. Now, that's the only leak we've had like that in uh, maybe a decade or two. But uh, basically what happens is a reporter for the journal who covers the Fed gets a call. This is... Um, you know the the chairman's secretary and the chairman would like you to know that and so there's sort of deniability no i didn't talk to jay powell <laughs> but uh it's a way that they can communicate to the markets to avoid that excessive volatility i talked about if something changes at the last minute but it's very rare now as i say not not something that's been done certainly since uh since greenspan's time i think um uh, they they figure they speak enough and they can only use it in, in emergencies. And, fi and finally, you know, something that, uh, that I always enjoy is listening to your questions and, and uh, the Q and a at the press conference. Um, you, you mentioned that I was actually uh, on, uh, on CNBC the morning of the first uh, Bernanke press conference back uh, a dozen or so years ago. And, you know, we didn't know what to expect out of the press conference. And, um, you know, having you and, and others up there asking smart questions is, is I think, always good for the public to hear. Um, do you, How do you think that that has evolved? And, and do you think that it will evolve in the future, um, you know, especially now that we have monthly press conferences? Well, that's been the big evolution is the frequency of the press conferences. We went from uh, four a year to eight a year uh, now after every meeting. And the evolution has really come about as we've seen different chairs come in. Uh, ben Bernanke was uh, somewhat academic and somewhat constrained in what he was trying to say. This was all new and he didn't want to step on any landmines and much was going on uh, because we were coming out of the financial crisis and we had uh, quantitative easing and then they were going into quantitative tightening. So there was a lot to unpack and for reporters, there was a lot to ask because we were trying to understand it all as well. Janet Yellen came in and we sort of had the status quo for a number of years. And she tended to be very academic and have her uh, answers to questions very carefully thought out and would go through them uh, sort of almost by reading from the book. Uh, then Jay Powell comes in and his view was that they were too academic and they were too talking too much above the average person's head. And if we're going to be speaking as much as we are, we should speak like the average American does. So he's much more open in that sense because he's not trying to hide behind uh, economic language, uh, but he does prepare very carefully in his in many of his remarks. If they know there's a controversial question coming, uh, many of his remarks will be scripted and he'll just read them. But uh, the evolution has been that he speaks much more like regular uh, people do. And so you change your questions to a little bit more direct, a little bit less about academics and economics, uh, try to get a view of what it means, what, what they've done uh, that day means and what it means for the future, which is, of course, always what Wall Street wants to know. What have you done for me lately? That's great. Um, so we're, we're getting toward time here, but I would love to ask you one more question because there's a lot of talk in among some 
circles in the market, not only financial Twitter, but also um, in some of the chats that we have here in Bloomberg Intelligence with uh, with investors, where th there's an idea that there's some kind of coordination on, on occasion between the Treasury Department and the Federal Reserve outside of the liquidity policies and the market function policies that we're talking about. Obviously, there's coordination because the FSOC exists, right? The Financial Stability Oversight Council exists and where, where members of the Fed, the Treasury Department, the OCC, and the SEC all get together and and uh, and, and try to help um, markets, right? And, and the financial sector in general and in terms of operation. Um, but, but, you know, is there, you know, how much tension do you think that there is and has it grown between the political segment? So whether it's the White House or Congress and the Federal Reserve, which is supposed to be a uh, an independent organization, although the members of the uh, Board of Governors are appointed by uh, by politicians? Well, historically, there was a lot of tension between the two sides and the White House used to pressure uh, the Fed quite a bit during the Volcker Greenspan years. Then Bill Clinton came into office and uh, Bob Rubin convinced him that the best thing for the administration to do would be leave the Fed alone and don't comment on it. And so they didn't. And that became the unofficial policy of the White House. We don't know what presidents have said to Fed chairs in private, but in general, the White House view has been hands off, or at least it was till Donald Trump came into office. And we all know uh, Mr. Trump had his issues with Jay Powell and the Fed. Uh, then with Biden back, it's we're back to uh, we don't get involved in what the Fed does. Uh, the Fed, for its part, tries to stay out of politics. The one time we saw it happen was, was uh, when Greenspan endorsed the um, George Bush tax cuts because we were running a government surplus at the time. And then, of course, we went back into deficit and we had a recession and everybody criticized Greenspan for signing on to sort of a, a political fiscal aspect. And so Fed chairs are very leery of doing that. And they don't want to talk about what politicians should do. They don't want politicians to talk about what the Fed should do. And of course, we'll see what happens in November, whether they, they get the next four years off or whether they'll be back to taking flack. Well, we, in February, we'll have the uh, semi-annual uh, monetary policy testimony also, which, uh, especially in the House of Representatives, is always uh, entertaining, if not informative. Um, well, it's almost never informative, but it's <laughs> definitely sometimes entertaining. <laughs> Yes, indeed. And and during the, that, uh, basically what it comes down to is uh, Democrats tried to get the Fed chair to say good things about Democrat initiatives and Republicans try to get them to say good things about Republican initiatives and both sides try to get the Fed chair to say bad things about the other guys. And uh, Dave Powell in particular says, I'm not going to talk about that. Uh, his phrase is, I'm going to stay in my lane. <laughs> That's great. Well, um, you and I both sometimes get out of our lane and talk about things that, that we don't. And I appreciate your your time when uh, you and I are uh, appear on television together. You uh, talking about the economic environment and, and me talking about the rates market. And um, I really appreciate your coming on Fic Focus. Oh, it's been a privilege. That was Mike McKee. He's Bloomberg's international economic and policy correspondent. Thank you very much for listening to the FIC Focus podcast. If you have any ideas for uh, guests you'd like us to see or topics you'd like us to cover, please hit us up on the Bloomberg Terminal. And until next time, I've been Ira Jersey. Be well. <laughs>